Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to the Mastery Mix Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Mike and Davina, and I also just want to take a quick second just to acknowledge all of the longtime listeners that have been listening to all the previous episodes and continue to share this podcast with their friends and, and share it online. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. In today's episode, I'm really excited because I get to interview someone whose work I really admire, and I think that he has an amazing ear for detail. His name is Richard Cheeky. He's worked with artists such as Rush, Dream Theater, Pink, Mick Jagger, and a whole bunch more. Now, when it comes to mixing, it's really important to pay attention to the little details. Sometimes it's just like little ghost notes or something like that on the drums. But when it comes to a band like Rush or Dream Theater, there's a lot of these little technical details that can sometimes get lost in the mix and people can overlook. But I think that Richard has a great ear for noticing all of these things and making sure that they come out in the mix. So I was really excited to get the chance to talk with him and learn from him. And in the interview, I think that he shares some amazing advice on how you can improve your productions and overall experience within the studio. And he also shares a bunch of really great stories from the studio, and one of which, as soon as he said it, just like immediately scared the crap out of me. I think it was it's a very important lesson that all engineers need to learn and hopefully don't have to learn the hard way after hearing Richard tell the story. It's something that was almost a career-ending mistake that he could have made, and it came on an album that was really a pinnacle album in his career that really shot off his career and got it going and working with a lot of big artists, so... I'll let him tell the story. So without further ado, let's not wait anymore. Let's just jump right into the interview. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast, Richard. Appreciate being here. Thanks for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. So for people who might not be familiar with who you are and your background, can you give us a little bit of story on how you got started, what you do? Sure, sure. Um, a lot of times I do mix work, uh, mixing, engineering, and in uh, production. My background, I, I, come from a, uh, I come from a musical background. I started off by... Uh, uh, by being in a band, I do what I do because uh, um, I mean I've, I started this quite a while ago, and I thought musicians recorded themselves, and that's really how I got into it because I thought it was a just a natural byproduct of uh, being a musician that we had to know all of this uh, extraneous knowledge about how to record ourselves and how to capture what we do, and so I learned that at a very young age. In my teens, I was. Uh, you know, hunting down multi-track machines and learning how to record and, and, and reading like the RCA recording handbook, like really dry technical knowledge, but it was something that would, uh, that would become useful uh, in, uh, in later life. I started by, uh, you know, I was trying to get a record deal for my band and, uh, you know, I had a friend of mine who had a, a rehearsal space and recording studio in a uh, all-in-one building in, uh, in Toronto. And uh, he had asked me if I would... Uh, uh, for a few bucks, if I would take care of the place uh, at night, you know, let bands in, uh, you know, lock them out, lock them out when they were uh, done rehearsing, and he said, "Yeah, you know, if you want to use the studio, uh, please go ahead. Just don't, you know, don't blow anything up." And uh, so I spent a lot of time writing uh, and learning how to record in that room, and there was also the benefit of traffic from other bands. You know, they would poke uh, poke their head in and, "Hey, man, what are you working on?" and uh, 
uh, you know, the, the, the dialogue was started. Hey, I'm working on my own stuff. And, oh, wow, that sounds cool. Hey, you, you should record our band sometime. And, of course, all these bands were trying to get record deals as well. So I started to get just natural promotion by these bands sending stuff to record companies and the managers and other people. And uh, I started to get calls from, uh, from uh, record companies. And, he, and they would say, hey, do you know, do you want to record some demos? It started off by recording demos, like writing demos for bands. And I was working with bands at the time, like uh, uh, Tragically Hip and, uh, and Jeff Healy and all these, all these other guys. And at the same time, I was working at, uh, at my uh, aspirations to be, uh, to, to be in a, a signed band and touring. And, uh, but the, the recording kept growing very quickly. And uh, I, I got to a point where I went, you know, I kind of have to start making a choice of which way I'm going with this. And uh, I, was, uh, uh, I was working with, uh, uh, with, with Jeff Healy. I put a, quite a bit of time in with him. And uh, the great thing about them is they really like to work with uh, uh, marquee uh, producers uh, like Joe Hardy, uh, Tom Panunzio, and, uh, and there's one other guy named Marty Fredrickson. And Marty... Uh, who's a great songwriter and a great multi-instrumentalist and a producer, He, uh, we, we worked on one of the final Jeff Healy records, and uh, we had a great time working together. And uh, I, at the time, I was, you know, we were, we were pretty cutting edge. We were doing everything in Pro Tools as opposed to tape, so we were in that transitional period. And uh, he had mentioned, you know, that, hey, we're going to work together sometime uh, in the future, uh, which is always great to hear. You know, which is always great to hear, but, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you just keep doing what you do. And, uh, you know, 10 months later, I got a call from him, and that was, uh, he just said, hey, man, you want to you come record drums? I really like what you do, uh, what you do with uh, recording drums, and, you know, I've got a five-day gig uh, in, in Boston. Do you want to do that? And I went, yeah, sure, great. You know, it was, uh, I, I wanted to do work outside of, uh, outside of Canada, and uh, so I took the gig right away, and I said, but then after all of accepting the gig and the arrangements are starting to be made, I went, oh, by the way, who is he? He says, well, it's Aerosmith, man. <laughs> so, you know, I, I proverbially crap myself, and, uh, but it was awesome. It was a really, really great opportunity. And I, um, I ended up uh, going down there for five days. I went in going for five days, and Stephen and Joe met with me uh, uh, after the five days and asked me to stay on. Uh, as the uh, as the uh, as the chief, and um, so I ended up doing eleven months uh, with them to do just push play, and that record sold. I don't know two. I think it was two million and change. Wow. So, yeah, and and you know, uh, uh, Jaded was uh, was a number one. It was a number one at rock radio on Billboard for quite a while. So, you know, that was kind of the dividing line in my career. And then since then, you know, it's uh, it's just been kind of jumping from one band to the next. That, that's the dream right there. It's really great. I have a lot of work, you know. I mean, in, uh, I, I wish it was as fast as me just telling you this in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you had something that was a really defining moment in your career that really skyrocketed it from there, right? Yes, very. Yeah, exactly. There's kind of, I, I call that the red line. There's the uh, everything before that, you know, and then everything after was a, a completely, you know, it's been a completely different ride from, from before. How do you think your career would differ if that didn't happen? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I mean, I had gone through uh, uh, some difficult sessions, which were, uh, which in my opinion, in hindsight, were um, were very valuable because uh, it, uh, 
they trained me uh they trained me to handle um uh, higher higher pressure uh sessions in the studio uh, where um you know one, one of the major things that that uh, when i talk at, at schools or i do a- any sort of uh, discussion with anybody about the entertainment industry is that the people's skills are by far the strongest asset. You know, you have to know your uh, your technical knowledge, but people's skills are are by far the strongest asset to get uh, uh, to get through the industry. Definitely, I 100% agree with that. Yeah, and and that you know, as much as that's entertainment industry, I, th- I think that kind of applies to everything in general. But you know, in the music industry, it seems to be uh, particularly prominent. Definitely, for sure. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned that uh, you were in a band. What instrument do you play? Guitar. Guitar. Guitar is actually in a band with James uh, James Labrie from uh, from Dream Theater. We were uh, we were chasing the dream together. Wow. And then and then once uh, you know once we were uh, once we had decided to wrap that up, uh, you know I got together a bunch of demos and a bunch of photos for him that he ultimately sent off to uh, uh, to Dream Theater so we could do the audition and uh, and uh, end up in the band. That's amazing. Yeah. How do you feel your ability to play guitar has influenced the work that you do? My ability to play guitar, uh, it's being able to relate to musicians, um, I, I guess, on a one-to-one level. Uh, you know, I work with a lot of guitar players, so being able to do guitar speak with them is, uh, is, is very valuable to uh, say, you know what, I'm looking, I'm looking for this, do this, this feels rushing. Feels like there's a bit more palm muting. This, you know, it, it you can actually say, hey, you have to adjust your technique this way so that it affects this sonically. So uh, I find that that makes it uh, uh, that that makes it much easier and to be able to uh, uh, keep the pace in the studio. Yeah, I think that that's totally really important to have. Yeah, it, it, nothing more frustrating. I, I feel as a drummer, a lot of producers I've worked with in the past don't know how to play drums they know how to play guitar or keys or something like that and it's so frustrating sometimes to not have them communicate in the same way that i that i kind of need to hear it right 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 i think it's super important to understand how to communicate with musicians absolutely and and i mean there is a there is a uh compromise i i I would think that uh you know for instruments that uh you know we all can't play everything of course unless we're jordan rudis who seems to be able to play everything (laughs) but you know if you know, we all can't play all instruments, so you know, to be able to relate to you know an oboe player or any anybody else, I, I think that there's a, you know, just trying to get an understanding of what they what they do and and re- relate it to them as best we can, right? I mean, it's not a definitely not a perfect world, but you know, the more knowledge we have on hand, the more valuable it is. For sure. Uh huh. So tell me about your studio setup these days. What are you? Are do you have a home base? Or are you kind of traveling all over the place? Um, I travel all over the place. Uh, when I'm recording, I mean, I haven't recorded in Canada. Uh, I'm in Toronto, Canada. My home base is Toronto, Canada uh, for, for family. Uh, but I travel a lot for work. Um, typically, uh, the last time I recorded in Canada would have been Rush, Clockwork Angels, and that was at the end of 2011. Other than that, I'm usually traveling. Um, I do have a setup for mixing. It's a full-fledged mix room. Uh with like an expansion, 15-foot expansion ceiling that uh, uh, that I built uh, eight years ago. And, uh, I mean, I predominantly mix, uh, I mix in the box, so uh, it makes it very efficient. So I can bring my, uh, I can bring my, uh, my, my rig around in a single good chunky road case. So it's uh, highly mobile and efficient. That's awesome. 
So what's your mindset when you go into a mix? How do you start? Where do you start? What are you listening for? Uh, my first thing to do is to uh, do an overall review and to speak with a uh, record company and artist management, speak with everybody quickly, get get an idea of the lay of the land, what they're looking for, what, what their expectations are for the project, and uh, to make sure that the uh, what's recorded aligns with what the expectations are, right? And th- and that's really important because sometimes that it doesn't quite happen. It's close, so you might have to, you know, there might be, hey, you know, they're they're looking for, uh, you know, they're looking for these really uh, big chunky guitars, but they're these uh, little tiny guitars recorded. So it's hey, do you have a DI track? You might have to do some reamping. There's you know there's all sorts of uh, 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 little tricks that might happen. Um, on the fly, again, depending on what the expectations are. So that's that's the first step. And I, I kind of build uh, uh, bottom-up for my mix. I do drums, bass, guitars. I do all the core instruments, get everything sitting properly, uh, work on vocals, and then put everything together and then start combing through the mix over and over again and fine-tuning it. That's cool. You had mentioned uh, communicating with the artists and the labels and, and making sure that the vision aligns with what you're going to do. What happens in cases where you find the label and the artist disagree? That's a really good question. I, I, you know, a lot of times, uh, I mean, the, with the artist, it's it's their record uh, uh, creatively. Um, depending, again, on what the relationship was with the record company is, a lot of times now uh, with the way the uh, the industry has changed that there's a much more of a um, cooperative uh, effort with record company and uh, and artists. The, from a business point of view, that they're really uh, uh, both equally, I don't want to use the word liable, but they both have equal risk uh, as far as um, uh, as far as releasing a, a record. So the cooperation level, I, I, I don't find that there's a, uh, uh, you know, the stories that we would hear from 20 or 30 years ago about how the artist and uh, and uh, record labels are really far apart. I, I find that really rare for, for the clients that, that I'm involved with. Uh, they uh, they just do what they do, and uh, you know you you know a band like Rush, you get, you know they they go out and they you know they they can tour for two years if they want. So I I don't really think a record company is going to be uh, freaked out about the decisions that they make for uh, for their albums because they're uh, ridiculously consistent artists for thirty or forty years. So fair enough, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What makes a great mix then? Uh, Emotional translation is what makes a good mix. How does it make somebody feel? Uh, if the uh, from an artist's point of view, uh, if it makes them kind of relive, uh, relive when they were recording it, there might be a certain feeling that they get about how great. Oh God, that solo felt awesome. This felt awesome. I lo- you know this track makes me really excited. And if they if that emotion can be perpetuated after the record is done, then it's then it's a really good mix. Uh, from the artist's point of view, from a listening point of view, if that emotion can get translated to the artist, or I'm sorry, to the listener, and uh, and that's consistent, the more people that that happens to, then that's a good mix. Definitely, definitely. So, how long do you find it normally takes you to finish a mix? Then, really varies anywhere from three hours to three days. It, there isn't any uh, there isn't any uh, uh, ruling. Um, you know, the one benefit I can say is by uh, mixing uh, when I mix in Pro Tools, the great thing about it is it's possible for the artist now to live with the mix and go, you know, I'm kind of hearing uh, uh, these small changes, and they can be uh, really intricate changes. And because the mix just recalls in about 90 seconds, it's really easy just to do an update 
reprint and send it back off. So uh, the uh, the era of mi compromised mixing has has dropped substantially because you don't have to, you know, you don't have to go to a, a studio do a, an analog recall and then you know cross your fingers that it comes back exactly the same. So that's sure. uh, that's a great thing. So you, you said between three hours and three days. That's quite a wide range. So how do you know when you're done a mix then? Um, there's a uh, there's a certain feeling. Uh, there's a certain feeling where, when everything starts to click in, you know, the, uh, depending on the size of the mix, there's say when you start off, there's, uh, if it's a dense mix track wise, uh, there's a certain feeling, I guess, of, of, there can be a feeling of shell shock where there's like, oh man, there's a lot of stuff and how do I place this? Uh, and then breaking it down into chunks and, uh, taking care of each, uh, uh, each, um, instrument. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, this is, this is starting to feel like a song. And I think that all of a sudden everything clicks in and, you know, when you start to get that emotional translation as a mixer, what I had uh, mentioned before about uh, uh, emotional translation, like going to the artist, that's something from a mixing point of view that, that we feel that too. So when that feeling is consistent, all, you know, all of a sudden it gets to a point of this feels pretty good. What could I do to improve it? And when, when that question, uh, when that question uh, starts to be difficult to answer, then we're getting close to the end. I like that. That's a great answer. You've been doing this for quite a while now. At what point did you feel like you really started to make good mixes? Um, well, I listened to some of the ones I did uh, quite a while ago, and they were awful. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's one of those things that uh, mixing is a uh, uh, it's a continual learning experience. So, I, I would hope that. You know, uh, we would run into each other five years from now and we, you know, we could say, what do you do now that's better than five years ago? And I could answer. So it, it's a continual learning thing. I mean, I, you know, it's, you know, we can listen to something that's technically average, but if the emotional translation is fantastic, you know, we could say that's, we could say that's a good mix, right? Because there's, you know, there's the limitations of technology, say from 20, 30, 40 years ago. There's some pretty great records from that era that, you know, if Very we, true. you know, we listen to a record, uh, we can listen to an old, old, old record. We go, hey, you know, that record, that doesn't sound anything like now with the extended bottom end and, the, you know, full frequency response. But you know what? It moved tens of millions of people. So, you know, there's there's a lot of value to it as a uh, as a uh, as a piece of um, artist expression. Very true. I agree with that 100 percent. And yeah, I, I think that. Just the way technology is always changing, we're always going to be advancing to some degree, you know? And, and we'll look back at, yeah, like you said, we'll look back five years from now and think that our mixes now suck, probably. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, you brought up a really good uh, point of, you know, the, there's something in there, say, about technology, things advancing. You know, with technology, there's been a, a large um, homogenization of, of the tools that we use there. If you look back, say, uh, 30 years ago, you had to go into a major facility and you had to have, uh, you had to have a major, uh, console that was a half million dollars and you were using, uh, you were using a $280,000 tape machine. And now, uh, now you can go and download Reaper and have a good you can you buy a, if you really want to go top end you can get a you know like a neve mic pre and a great microphone 
And that little t that that simple chain is going to give you the ability to make a, a great record. So really, what it comes down to is the homogenization is that we all have very similar tools, right? They're available to the masses. So it, it, we've gone a full circle where it really comes down to uh, us as musicians and engineers and mixers. But it comes down to us to be creative and innovative. So it, it's it's a great time and that it really just we've nullified a lot of the technology and just said, okay, now, now it's come right back to us. How hard do we work? What's our discipline like as people? So it's a, it's a really great time. So true. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, do you agree that like a lot of people still think that you need to have that Neve preamp or, or that high piece, high end piece of gear in order to, uh, you know, sound better. And, and, and like you said, everything is accessible these days. So those things are much more affordable, but do you, do you think that that's still the case that you do need to have that high end gear or can someone do somebody do it with like a $200 Scarlet? Well, I, I think that there is a, uh, I think that there's a reasonable compromise there that, uh, to say, I'm going to do a, uh, uh I'm going to do my absolute best work with garbage. I, I think is, you know, is it possible? Yeah, I suppose. But, you know, if I were to, say, put that to you for drums and say, hey, you know what? You do great work. Uh, uh, you do great work. So I'm going to put you on a $99 drum kit with, uh, you know, with those old foil cymbals. Remember, the, do you remember the Christmas oh, yeah. <laughs> drum? Remember the Christmas <laughs> drum kits that used to be in Sears for $99? Oh, yeah, with the little you rivets know, to make it sound like it's got exactly. some shimmer on so, it. You know, so, so, you know, you look at that and, it, you know, it really... You could probably do something that's pretty interesting on that, but you know, once you, if I were to, if I were to say, hey, we're going to put you on a, a two thousand dollar drum kit, you know, you could, you could do a fantastic performance, and the drums will sound good, you know. And then if you know, you get the law of diminishing returns. We could put you on a fifty thousand dollar drum kit that has, uh, you know, that might have the copper plating, uh, you know, custom copper plating on all of the hardware, and then the. Uh, you know, really, really, really done. And, and yes, it will be better. Yes, it, it'll be marginally better. But I think there's a law of diminishing returns. And, and if you were to ask me, uh, if you were to ask me, uh, do you want somebody to, uh, uh, to sing through uh, uh, an SM57? Uh, do you want somebody to sing through an SM57 or somebody to sing through a, uh, uh, through a, a 1953 U47? Uh, if I had a choice, I'm going to take the better singer with the better song and the 57. I would do that first. So really it comes, it comes down to having a singer that is really great and knows how to, again, how to connect emotionally and really have a great song. You know, I, I, I think there's, there are tons of records that are technical. They're amazing technically. There are tons out there, but really... The, 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 the trick is to have a record that is technically amazing and then have amazing songs and amazing musicians. That combination is like from an engineer producing a mixing point of view, that, that, is, that is what we look for is, is that combination, not one or the other. Yep. I absolutely love that. I agree with all of that. And uh, it's interesting that you bring up that, that example of the 57 and, and the 47 um, I, I've once heard, and I don't know if you could shed some light on this cause you have worked with Aerosmith, but I've heard that Steven Tyler was recorded with the 57 at some point. 
I don't know if it was any of the sessions you worked on, but not not any of the ones I worked on. Uh, with Stephen, okay. we used we used a AKG C12. Uh, okay. We used a C12 with him. Um, I don't have recall notes in front of me. If I were to remember, I would say a C12, probably a Neve Pre, and uh, uh, we were quite on the distressors then, so it was probably either a distressor or a, a, a TubeTech CL1B. Okay. So those are we never use that with with him we'd use uh, we used this uh one of the c12 the vrs the reissues right so yep. that but that's a good example that's a that's a good microphone and it's expensive but it's not stratospherically expensive do you know what i mean it's not like mm-hmm. uh you know if you go down to a, a blackbird in nashville you know he has a, a, a dozen mcbride's got like a dozen or a dozen and a half uh elam 251s that are you know twenty two thousand dollars a piece or whatever their the current market value is you know there's all, all sorts of amazing mics that he's got you know the c12 is a great mic as well but you know steven is steven he sounds uh he sounds ridiculously good no matter what he sings in mm-hmm. that's great yeah What's something that you like to do with your mixes that other people might think you're a little crazy for doing? Do you have any sort of experimental chains that you like to work with? Or uh, That is a song-to-song thing. Uh, that's a good question, but it really varies uh, uh, from song to song and from what the, uh, again, what the, what the artist is doing and, and what the, you know, if I were to do a, uh, like a, a, a modern rock radio mix, like, a, like say something like Skillet, um, that's going to be a uh, that's going to be a, a lot different than if I'm working on say a Dolores O'Riordan song where she wants to uh, uh, you know hey I've got this little vocal scream and I want that to continue forever and slowly degrade and then I want the band to stop and I just want the echo left you know all of that you know that kind of uh, that kind of effects and routing is going to be a lot different than say what I would do for uh, somebody that says hey I need the I need a song done for rock radio. So then, I guess in terms of the, uh, aside from the normal cleanup of making tracks sound nice and clear, how do you go about making more of those creative moves in mixing? Is it something that you always discuss with the artist ahead of time, or is that something that you kind of just do and then hope that they like it? Or what, What's your approach to that kind of thing? It's a combination of both. Sometimes uh, the artist has uh, uh, recorded something, and they have, uh, they have some particular uh, features in mind. And uh, in that case, what I'll do is I'll... I'll uh, I'll listen to what they they've done. I'm, there've been points where I, you know, they've done something really interesting. I just use it in the mix, or it might be something where I could see what they're trying to do, and I say, you know what, uh, just give me that little piece as a reference, and uh, uh, let me work it up at this end, and then I'll, uh, uh, I'll I'll get artist approval that way, right? So there's uh, uh, there's a combination of different things that uh, you know, or or if. Uh, one more thing is is if say there's a a piece where the artist has done something vocally and then after it there's a hole, you know, I might fill it in with some delays or some call and answers that are, uh, you know, I'll do a, a like a almost like a radio effect afterward, uh, just to fill in the holes, you know, there, there's that sort of thing, little tricks that you know if I feel the energy of the track is changing, and I'm going yeah it feels like it should be building up not not loose, you know not loosening up right there then you know I'll add in something and generally. Uh, you know, it's kind of like reading the music. If I can feel where it, it is supposed to be going, then I'll uh, I'll adjust the mix accordingly. That's great. When you get sessions sent to you for a mix, what problems do you frequently see in terms of how the mixes are sent to you? A, a couple different things. You had brought up uh, cleaning up tracks. Um, with the uh, 
proliferation of uh, of home studios, uh, one of the major things uh, coming in are sort of noise anomalies. Where uh, you know, I, I did a mix uh, la- last year, and I, I was playing the track through, and I was going, "What is that sound?" You know, I would hear this thing off in the distance, and what is it? And on a background vocal track. The guy had recorded uh, some background vocals in uh, uh, in his apartment, and I, I I don't know what city he was in, but he had his window open, and it was a bus. It was a bus <laughs> taking leaving a bus stop, and it's like, what is that? You know, or or I've recorded, uh, uh, I, I've gone to mix something, and I'm watching my uh, my speakers slowly move in in and out, and I'm going, this what it, you know again, what is that? And I stopped and I couldn't hear anything, but I could hear my speakers mechanically going. Well, it turns out that they had uh, uh, they'd recorded some acoustic guitar in a building, uh, again, another home uh, studio environment where uh, the air conditioner was on the on the roof of the building, but it wasn't done for a studio. So it was coupled to the building, it was bolted straight to the building and it was vibrating the building at about four or five hertz. So. You know, they hadn't high-passed their microphones or anything, so you know, there were all these weird, you know, sub-frequencies that were, uh, that were recorded. You know, so, it, you know, it's all that sort of stuff, going through and technically bringing the quality up to studio standards. You know, let, let me add one more thing that there's, uh, as far as home studio, uh, one, one of the things that I, I, that I discuss is that when, when we talk about uh, uh, like a commercial studio and a home studio. There's two components to each of the phrases, commercial studio and home studio. The first word refers to its location. Commercial, mm-hmm. like a an industrial unit or a separate building, right? That's, and then there's studio. That studio, in my opinion, refers to, you know, having your room treated correctly, sonically, Right, having the room treated correctly sonically, that you know, so i.e., not a ten foot by ten foot bedroom uh, with a mattress up against the back wall, and you know, having all sorts of weird flutters and and uh, again with the air conditioning problems, all that thing. That's being able, having a home studio is is a fantastic idea, but it has to have the acoustics properly set so you can do a great job recording, and so you have a good foundation for reference for mixing because if you're if your room sounds bad, doesn't matter whether it's a, it's in a commercial unit or at home. If it doesn't sound good, then you're building on a bad foundation, and you're bound to make errors in uh, in recording or mixing. Yep, I agree with that for sure. Uh-huh. How do you approach gain staging in your mixes? Gain staging um, is particularly important in digital in any DAW because once you overload the 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 mix bus, quite often it doesn't sound so good. So. I have a tendency to keep the uh, keep the gain staging down as the mix flow progresses. Like it's it's down at the beginning. I have it low. I have it loud enough so that the uh, so that the uh, the plugins can do their work, i.e., compressors or uh, any saturators or anything like that. But I also have everything subgrouped and gains. Uh, I have uh, VCA set up so that. Um, like if I have, let's say I've got a, a snare channel and I've got a, let's say a snare sample, snare top, a snare bottom, and uh, like I'll do a, a submix of those and those go into a, a subgroup and then 
I can control the level of that subgroup blending within the uh, the drum kit, and then the drum kit recombines down into a subgroup of its own, and then that subgroup is controlled by uh, VCAs. So I can I can and VCAs just it makes it feel very much like uh, let's say how the uh, how an SSL was done. So I can control the uh, the output of each individual instrument, so that you know I'm not looking at a uh, a mix that when I have no processing on my master bus that the, the, the meters aren't pegging. So I, I look at my meters are usually sitting at about minus, uh, minus six, maybe peaking at minus three with absolutely nothing on the master bus. And then I can do my master bus processing. I think that's really helpful because a lot of people don't know where to let their levels sit. Right. And, and everyone's still thinking it's like just pin it to the top, right? Well, recordings, you know, with digital recording, you know, you can have uh, as long as we're not going over zero the digital recording is fine so we could have a kick drum like i'll get in drums that are at minus two minus one you know and in in pro tools i'll just take if i've got a single uh if i have a single uh track uh, i can just gain stage the the entire file down right so if you know if i get a, a mix in and they're particularly loud recordings not distorted but just loud I'll go through and just do a bunch of gain stage. You know, I'll take the, I'll take all the tracks down, maybe anywhere from five to ten dB, so that they're manageable with the plugins, and I'm not getting into gain crisis right away. That definitely helps. Uh huh. Another thing that a lot of people definitely struggle with is getting the low end right, and uh, you know, people will mix their mix their stuff, go to their car afterwards, and realize that their ba- their bass is just like completely out to lunch, and it's too, either too much or they don't have enough. What are some of your tips with getting the low end right? Um, you know, first thing, um, the most important thing is you, you, you brought up listening, um, you brought up listening and you take it out to the car and it's not right. Um, if somebody were to listen to say what their, uh, some of their favorite records are, uh, understanding what, when they listen to their favorite record, how much low end feels right there. I, I think that, uh, your question kind of goes back to, uh, critical listening, Really, that's what it comes down to. Like, if you if you were to listen to a record, you go, "I really like the bottom end on, insert whatever your favorite album is," and once you have an understanding of that and say, "Well, this is enough bottom end," then you know there's a combination of things that we can do uh, as far as uh, uh, high pass filtering, you know, side chaining instruments so that you know you have a, you have a kick drum, you can have bass. Uh, you know, can have a lot of bass guitar, but when the kick drum hits, you could side chain your bass so that it just dips for that little, you know, might pull it down to dB so that when the kick drum hits that they, you know, they're not fighting each other, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, and then being able to sculpt the bottom end is, you know, using a high pass filtering to remove frequencies. As, as your frequencies decrease, the amount of power it takes to reproduce them increases. So, you know, there's, uh, you know, it, you don't need 10 hertz on a kick drum, that sort of thing. So if you have 10, a lot of say a lot of 10 or 15 hertz in your in your music, that doesn't mean there's there's a lot of bass there. It means you have to actually cut out the those sub frequencies so that there is power left to reproduce frequencies that are uh, that are valuable for us. Like you know, 80 say 60 to 80 hertz that we could sit down and say you know that kick drum has a lot of meat to it. But you know once you get below that, you know there are frequencies there that are you could feel them a bit, but you know there's a compromise to how much you put in before your uh, uh, before it overloads uh, uh, 
listening systems. You know, from a mixing point of view, mix is a giant, um, it's a giant compromise. And I'm using that, not using that word in, uh, in, um, in a negative way. Compromise means uh, you have to get it so that it works on as many listening environments as possible from a great stereo system to earbuds. Uh, so if you have a mix that translates into as many listening environments as possible, it's a great mix. If you have something that can only work on, say, a you know a ten thousand dollar stereo system and it blows up everything else, <laughs> you're going to have a lot of people that go, oh, that, "I can't play that mix back." So in in reality, it's uh, you know the approach might be really interesting, but it's it's not a very useful mix. So there's a uh, it's it is learning to get a compromise so that it plays in as many. Uh, on as many stereos, uh, playback media as possible. That's great. It definitely sounds like you're an advocate for using reference tracks as well, right? Absolutely. I, I, you know, it's not. It's one of those things that uh, I'm not saying, hey, you know, copy, you know, you're listening to uh, band X and you say, hey, yeah, just copy that. I'm, I'm not advocating that. But there are things that uh, if you have somebody that has a, uh, uh, you know, you hear something on radio that's uh, that it translates well on radio and it sounds really fantastic. And then you know you can, you listen to it on uh, uh, you can listen to it on iTunes or Spotify or you listen to a CD and it translates through all these different uh, uh, media. There's there's a value to learn and understand what the what the mixer and the artist have done to uh, to make that happen. And that, that's that's great knowledge to uh, to figure out. For sure. So we all learn from trial and error and making mistakes in the studio. Can you think of any examples of something that maybe went wrong in a session that you, you learned a very valuable lesson from? Yes, got a good one for you. All right. So middle of recording, uh, middle of recording, uh, just push play. Uh, we were recording, uh, we were recording some guitar with Joe Perry, and uh, you know the, he was recording away. And generally, uh, when Joe was playing, we would do start when he would do something he didn't like it would start stop cue back continue forward right so we're kind of moving moving ahead in steps and so he had stopped and uh pressed uh, spacebar to stop recording didn't stop recording and all of a sudden we uh, uh on on the uh, older apple systems you used to get this little uh graphic of a bomb when, okay. the, when the computer crashed, right? So all of a sudden the screen went gray and we got this bomb. And it said, usually it would say, you'd get this bomb and it would say an error of minus some cryptic number, right? Yeah. An error of minus 1,014 has occurred. Please restart your system, right? Anyway, so we got a number uh, that said an error of negative point, And then it was this decimal and it went, and it went through the box and it went right off the page, right off the screen. <laughs> and I'd never seen that before. And he went, this is bad, right? This is bad. Yeah. Restarted, and uh, we restarted, and the record was gone. Oh, no. Gone. Directory, please format your disk, right? It was gone. So, um, you know, I, uh, I, I probably turned really good, like, probably good either white or gray, you know, more, more, <laughs> more than my normal white or gray, and, uh, and, uh, Joe, Joe just said, well, boys, let me know when you got it ironed out. And he just walked, he walked out and, you know, we were, we were crapping because we didn't know, uh, we didn't know how, what sort of damage had occurred, but we had backed up. And this isn't, 
isn't quite how it was now. This was like backups with tape, uh, digital, right, with uh, Exabyte and all sorts of stuff like that. And so we started to restore. We had to restore the record. Wow. We had to restore the record from the backup we had done. And But, you know, we it's one of those things you do backups, but... You know, the likelihood of really needing them to this extent is, uh, hasn't, that hadn't happened to me before. So, uh, again, it's from tapes. It was painfully slow, painfully slow. And we restored it. And at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, uh, which was late at night, uh, I went and talked to the band. Out of all of it, we had lost one acoustic guitar that, uh, that was recorded that day. So uh, wow. as far as mistakes good. go, the biggest thing I could say is back up religiously because I tell you when that happened, <laughs> had we not been doing that, I mean, we were really far into the record. So the, uh, the cost of not backing up would have been unbelievably expensive. So back up, back up, yeah. and then back up again and take stuff and have it off-site and have multiple copies. And to this day, uh, when we uh, uh, record, uh, when we record, like when I work with Dream Theater, we have three copies at all times, and we're rotating through them, and uh, they travel separately. Uh, we have uh, we have the master copy that stays in the studio, and then I take a copy, and the uh, the assistant engineer who doesn't travel with us takes a copy. So we have three copies of the album that are in three individual locations so that it's, it's you know, the possibility of losing the album uh, is uh, is very low. So that, that would be the biggest learning lesson. That Aerosmith album, was that your first album that you'd worked on with them? Yes. Yeah, it was. Wow. So like, it was. going back to what we originally talked about, how that was like the one of the defining moments in your career – that yeah. could have ended it, right? It could totally, could totally have ended it, and it was one of those things that, doing the preparation and, you know, the uh, uh, going through, you know, with the assistant, you know, you'd say, hey, listen, uh, okay, well, we're taking off. You need to wait here till it's done, and, you know, he'd be like, oh man, you know, and it's because backups then would take four hours, five hours, mm-hmm. and it's like, dude, bring a book, you know, bring a book. You got to stay here, and you got to take care of this, and so all of that. Uh, of staying on people and having them work on that religiously, all of that worked out to be a, a, a great benefit and save the album. Yeah. I, I think that that story perfectly encapsulates why you need to back up stuff. You, you cannot, you <laughs> cannot believe the sensation, the sensation of, of, you know, when that system reboots and everything was, it was just scattered. There were two, it, one drive had failed, and the other one became corrupt, corrupt as a result. And I, I cannot tell you the the feeling of uh, I can't even describe it. it was just yeah, such my a... my heart sank as soon as you mentioned it. Like it scared the crap out of me. Oh, yeah. So I can well, only I, imagine my... what it was like being in there. Dude, I'm reacting like I literally I could feel you know I just feel like I've I've drank uh, like a double espresso in my hands. I can feel my myself getting nervous just just reliving the sensation of that. So. Let's talk about something happier. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, uh, fair enough. What's a good lesson that you've learned from another producer or mixing engineer? One of the things I, I really enjoyed with uh, with producers that that I worked with that got great results from the artist is the whole concept of 
having fun because it's 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 something that is uh, you know keeping the artist level and not bogging the artist down with technical uh, you know any technical details unless of course they're they're asking specifically about it but it's you know keeping the artist in their creative zone uh, I, I had worked with an art, uh, a producer years ago named Joe Hardy and Joe was incredible in that you know he would. Uh, you know, he would have a great time with the artist, and and he was a really he was a really technical guy, really knowledgeable, and you know we would uh, he would deal with the artist on their level. As soon as that talkback mic would click off, uh, you know he uh, we had a good relationship. For, you know he knew what uh, that I had a good uh, technical technical background, so he would all of a sudden click in. He said, "I need this, this, and this, and this done." And they would click back, and he would deal with the artist on their level. And we, so we would, you know, go, he would go from a creative to technical uh, uh, mindset, you know, at the drop of a hat. And that was something that was uh, that I found really great because he pulled a lot out of the artist. And uh, any producer that I've worked with that really knows how to work with the artist on a, and keep everything positive, I, you know, I found that to be uh, something that was uh, something really moved me. And uh, and has stayed with me through my career. That's very cool. I really appreciate that as well. I think it's you want to create memories for people in the studio, right? And not just be the, those technical memories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you know the um, uh, one of the things I find really gratifying is uh, you know I'll work with uh, with an artist and and you know these days how they're the making of or you know afterward they are you know the artist uh, they'll go through and do a track by track on YouTube or. You know, there's, they'll do uh, interviews and they'll talk about the record and, and, you know, how it was to make it. And, you know, one of the things that's really gratifying is the artists will say how much fun they had and what a great vibe it was. And, you know, like all of the technical minutia that goes on, or, you know, they, they, they didn't bring any of that up. You know, they brought up that they had a great time and, and, it was a it was a good feeling for them and and in my opinion that the artist is in an environment that is really uh, you're prone to make a good record because you feel good as opposed to you know being uh, you're feeling shitty if you feel shitty I just don't think you do your best work as opposed to you know just feeling awesome and say I'm gonna I'm gonna play the best track ever you know and you as a drummer yep. right if you feel awesome you come in and feel pumped up and everything's working. And, you feel like you could do your best work, then you know the, the, you're you're in a, a prime situation to do that, and I, I think that's uh, that's very valuable. Definitely. Do you master your own mixes? Uh, I try not to. Uh, I try not to, but I I, I do them. Uh, uh, not all the time. It all depends on what the project is. Uh, I'm absolutely fine to do that. Uh, I prefer to have a, another set of ears after the fact. But, you know, it's one of those things that because of the nature of uh, how um, loud mixes are these days, uh, that what I'll end up doing is I have two versions of mixes running. Well, I'll, I'll have the uh, straight off the console mix and then I'll have one that I, I get the mix. So it's, it's kind of in the realm of what the artist is expecting to hear when it's, uh, when it's mastered. And... Uh, because, you know, if they go and listen to, hey, I'm going to listen to my last record, and then they listen to the new one, and it's 10 dB quieter, you know, they're, they're, 
they're not going to be very satisfied with that. And then you're asking them to, oh, no, but the mix is fine. So I just need you to, you know, hey, just imagine it's like this. And I, I don't think that's the best. Uh, uh, <laughs> the, that's not the best environment for the artist to, you know, if they all of a sudden have a negative feeling about the record before they start listening to it because it's not as satisfying. That's not really that good. So I'll get the mix that it's in the zone and uh, and I'll pass those mixes along to the mastering engineer as well as the uh, the sort of the straight off the console mixes that are around minus 12, minus 10. And, uh, and so here's what they've been listening to and they've signed off on this vibe. So and they'll uh, they'll go from there. And then what are you expecting from the mastering engineer? Not to change the mix. So uh, not to change the mix, uh, meaning you know what if they want if the mix comes back and it's uh, and it's louder uh, within reason, um, if the mix comes back smashed or if the mix comes out where um, you know they say the the attack time of the limiting is so fast that the snare drum disappears and the guitars come flying out uh, more than how I left it, then then I'll flag the engineer and say yeah I don't want that. So. Uh, I have a tendency to say, here, here's this is what the artist has signed off on, and I'm monitoring that as well, and it, that feels pretty good. So you know, as long as it doesn't uh, uh, go by the wayside and and the mixes stay uh, stay consistent, you know, a lot of times mastering engineers, I, I like the idea that they'll they'll pace the album, kind of go old school. They'll pace the album, they'll uh, make the EQ consistent from track to track, you know, because their way of listening is. Uh, is linear. You know, they'll listen to uh, songs mm -hmm. that are like one, two, three, four, five. They'll go through the songs. They'll reference bits of you know, of of the album to see so that it feels consistent. Uh, as mixers, we will go if we're mixing. We'll do okay. We're doing song four today, so we listen to four, 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 four. Then we do oh, we're doing track seven, 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 seven. So we listen to each track repeatedly as we develop it, right and. You know, we can then we refer back and forth, and you know we can make little changes toward the end. But you know, it's the mastering engineer. You know, he's hearing it fresh. You know, we've been working, say, on a record for four to six months, and he'll he'll go through and just go linearly and go, okay, well, you know, I I just took a, I added a little bit of uh, ninety hertz here at half a dB because it, uh, this this other track really, you know, this had a little bit extra bottom end uh, to it, and this one really felt, you know, this one spoke to me a bit better, so I did that to this one as well. So that you know, that's what that's what uh, that's what the mastering engineer does to make Rich the mixing guy happy. <laughs> well, I think that's great because I think there are a lot of people out there who think, well, if I'm going to a mastering engineer, that my mix should change. Like they should be doing something. But it's refreshing to hear someone who who kind of just wants them to just tell you that you're right. Well, more or less, you know. Or if there's something that's uh, you know, if there's something that they're hearing, you know, uh, if there's something that they're hearing that. Uh, uh, um, that that's that's really valuable, you know. If they say, "Hey, man, where are you mixing this? This is different from something you've normally done," you know, there's uh, uh, you know, there have been times where I've done a remote, and they'll say, "Yeah, this one sounds different than this," and and you know, I'll go back and I'll say, "Oh, I'll recall and I'll make a compensation," you know, based on on what their opinion is because they're cold. They've come in cold, and they'll. You know, and, and when I say a recommendation, it's not like, oh, my, you know, the world is coming down. It's a small change. And, you know, for me uh, as a mixer, I, I, I'm, I try to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to deliver. I want to deliver a master that the guy, all he does is he puts it up to dig, close to dig zero and leaves it. And, you know, he didn't have to do anything else to it. So 
I mean, that's yeah. ultimately from a mixing point of view what I like. Um, it, what I can recommend to uh, to younger engineers and, and mixers, really, uh, you know, our job is kind of like doctors. Don't make the situation worse. Don't make the patient worse, right? So what I'm saying is like if, if you're in a uh, – if, if you're in uh, – when I was talking about home studios before, if you're in a home studio uh, – and you have a room that sonically does not sound good, do your best to have no sound as opposed to bad sound, i.e. make your room dead, because that is hmm. better than having bad sound. And, you know, when you have, uh, you know, when we see all these, you, you ever see those things with uh, that go around microphones when you're singing? And I, I don't have any brands that I can give you. Have you seen these things? They're like almost like uh, semicircles, and they're these little soundproof uh, things, and you you put your vocal oh, yeah, mic yeah. in them yep <clears throat> and what that does is that really just removes it it attempts to remove the sound of the room acoustics and make it dry you know so that, so anyway and, and i'm getting to this from a mixing point of view if if you don't know how to uh it, if you can't manipulate a bus compressor so that the mix feels good to you just don't compress it tell your mastering guy i you know what be open here, this is what I have. I was a little unsure about my bus compressing, so if you can help me with that, that'd be great. And they're going to appreciate that rather than giving them something that's smashed all, all to hell with an L1 or L2. It's all smashed to death, and they can't help you. Rather than doing that, give them something that is, uh, even if it's overly dynamic, but just make the mix as best as you can make it. And relate your... Uh, relate your situation to the mastering engineer, and he'll he'll appreciate he or she will appreciate that more than trying to say, "Hey, I made this like radio, and my release time is so fast that it's distorted." Can you get rid of that distortion? You know, they're going to appreciate being able to be creative at their end and make the mix sound as good as possible for you. And you know what? If your mix sounds better because you're open with the mastering engineer and didn't make technical errors on the way, then you know. He's going to he's going to pick up the ball and take it over the finish line for you, and you know what? If you have a better mix that's on radio, you're going to get better projects, and you're going to learn to do better work as you go forward. That's great. I uh, definitely love all of that. There's a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who might just be getting started in their careers. Do you have any advice for someone who's just starting out with mixing? Uh, starting with mixing is uh, is first off to learn. Uh, you know, we we had talked about uh, managing uh, bass. Managing low end, that, that doesn't, if you want more bass, that actually doesn't necessarily mean turning up the bass. It might mean high passing it slightly, high passing it so that you're not putting the energy in, uh, into frequencies that, uh, that we don't use in music that often, uh, i.e., you know, 10 hertz or 15 or 20 hertz that are so low that we, you know, having a little bit in there gives us that low end body, but having too much just pulls away. Uh, from the speakers being able to do their job. So it's learning, uh, you know, that um, learning what frequencies, uh, you know, if we say, hey, you know, that vocal sounds harsh, what frequencies denote harshness? So how do we cut that? How do we deal with it? You know, how do we set an EQ? Learn how to EQ. Learn about what compressing does to make, uh, make an instrument sound better learn what too much compression does to make it sound worse you know if we say we need guitars brighter does that mean we add you know 15k or you know well that would certainly make it brighter but we're also adding a bunch of frequencies that we typically don't have on 
uh, electric guitars and are, and we can't turn up the guitar in the mix. So it literally is learning how frequencies interact and learning how to place instruments so that we can hear everything, right? So it, it, there is, a, there is a, a method to the madness to work through EQs to get, get everything so it sounds nice and cooperates together. For sure. Yeah, I think it all comes back to what you were saying earlier, just about critical listening. And, it is. And kind of doing that trial and error and making those mistakes, but critically listening to what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. What about with uh, someone who's getting started and trying to get new clients? Do you have any advice for that? Absolutely. Top one, top one is be enthusiastic. Main one, do not be an asshole, period. <laughs> do not be yep. an asshole. I, I know it sounds funny. And, uh, you know, I've been going through the uh, how, to, how to sort of phrase this politically correct. And I just went, you know what? I, I think being politically correct is not correct. Do not be an asshole. Do not be entitled. That feeling that, hey, you know, I went to school X, therefore, I don't think I have to do that job. You know, I've been doing this for a long time, and I, I was working on the last Dream Theater record, and uh, I was making I was making coffee, and I said, hey, John, Petrucci, John, you want coffee? Yeah. Made coffee for me. He looked at the assistant, he goes, Jimmy T., this coffee's better than you. How come he's making better coffee than you? And it was just a joke, but it's just the the moral of my story is that you know what? I still do stuff. I I still, uh, you know, I still clean up at the end of the day. I still, you know, I'll still wrap up cables. I still do these things. That there's not a, uh, uh, you know, the feelings of entitlement that say, oh, I've gone to a school. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. Well, the industry has also changed that, uh, you know that. You know, we, we, we may not do a session where we have three assistants or, you know, or an assistant and two runners or something like that. Those sessions have also changed. So it really is being able to do a job, be, be the guy in the room that people want to hang out with. You know, if you feel that you're, if you're angry about stuff or, you know, if, if you, you're not feeling good and you translate that feeling to the artist, you, you will probably not get a call back. I've got some, I've, I have some clients like with Rush. I've been working with Rush uh, since uh, 2004, and it's 2017. You know, we still do stuff together. So, yep. you know, so it, that, to me, that speaks volumes. As if you have a client that you keep for a long period of time, then that's, that's very valuable. And that's how you get them because uh, they recognize uh, they recognize somebody as a team player that knows how to resolve problems and to be uh, uh, to to have a uh, uh, carry a good demeanor, especially under difficult uh, circumstances. It's it's all about the customer service and and making totally people is feel valued. Yeah, to, totally is, and more so than ever because you know now we have studios everywhere. Studio, you know, every they're all over the place now, whether they're in homes or wherever they're. You know, they're very common now because studios cost a fraction of what they used to cost to be able to put them together. Mm-hmm. So all of this makes it a uh, makes it important that we do our best to have great customer service and people will remember that. For sure. I 100% agree with that. Yep. So we got to start to wrap up a little bit, but uh, how can people follow you online? Um, I invite people to go to uh, richardchickey.com. Uh there's a bunch of social media connections there. Uh, I'm on Twitter, my studio. Uh, my studio is on Facebook, and uh, and I just opened up a Instagram, Richard Chicky, no dot. Uh, and so if um, 
anybody wants to, you know, follow through, then I, uh, I'm just getting my website reworked on right now. So I'll have my, uh, my blog will be uh, back up and running because I have a bunch of hackers from Eastern Europe that seem to like my website a lot. So <laughs> I've been working through that. But, you know, Facebook is a great place for, uh, for me to be. And again, all the social media, I'm there. And, uh, you know, happy to stay in touch with everybody. Awesome. And any cool projects that you're currently working on that you can talk about? Yeah. Uh, right now, I'm mixing, a, uh, I'm mixing a live show right now for uh, Dream Theater. And awesome. uh, I have another one I'm working on that I can't discuss right now. But, you know, had we been talking 10 days from now, I could. So Dream <laughs> Theater, the Dream Theater thing is the main thing. And I'm off to uh, uh, do a bit of work with a, an artist called uh, Redeem over in, uh, in uh, uh, Switzerland. They're a great three-piece band, great modern rock, uh, modern rock writers. And uh, that's my next project. That's awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing those. Yeah, man. Great to... Uh, Great to chat with you, Mike. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on here. I really appreciate it. Anytime, man. Keep uh, keep getting the information out there that's valuable, and it makes uh, you know we need to keep the uh, keep the integrity of the industry in place. And you're doing a great job with that. Thank you. Appreciate that. So that was my interview with Richard Cheeky. I had a great time talking with him, and I loved a lot of what he had to say about critical listening and learning how to understand your room and your monitors. Uh, the stuff on high-pass filtering and using that to enhance your low end. And I think the stories that he had to share were really impressive too and, and really important, a lot of lessons there, especially that Aerosmith story and almost losing those files. I, I can only imagine the amount of anxiety that he must have felt in that moment. And I think that that story really just shows the quality of engineer that Richard is and how he always thinks two steps ahead. Because sometimes as engineers, we're, we, we get tired at the end of a session and we want to put things off and we're like, oh, we won't need our backup files. Everything seems to be working right now and all that kind of stuff. And it's really easy to just be lazy. So I love that story because I think it really speaks volumes to the idea of paying attention to little details, working hard, and not just giving up or ignoring the monotonous things or the boring things. It's just really pushing forward and working hard. And all of those things together will really push your career forward and have an influence on the success you have. So I want to thank Richard one more time for giving me the opportunity to chat with him. I had a great time. And guys, if this is your first time hearing about Master Your Mix, please check out the website, MasterYourMix.com. And when you go to the website, sign up to download your free copy of the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It's a guide that will help you with using EQ and compression in your mixes so you can get better results faster. And once you sign up for that, you'll also be added to my mailing list where every week I send out new videos, tips and tutorials, podcast interviews, all sorts of really good stuff that's going to help you with improving your mixes. So make sure to check that out at MasterYourMix.com. Once again, it's the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is a free download that you can get now. Also, guys, if you like what you heard in this podcast, please make sure to share it on social media. Leave a rating and review on iTunes. That really helps spread the word and allows me to continue to make these episodes and uh, really help you guys with your productions. So thank you one more time, and I'll talk to you in the next episode. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com. <laughs>